From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Our topic today is the impact of uncertainty on the economic recovery and what is needed to get businesses and consumers to rebuild their confidence in spending. Joining me today are two McKinsey senior partners who've been deeply involved in helping develop our perspective on navigating the crisis. Penny Dash is based in London and leads our healthcare systems and services practice in Western Europe. Sven Smit is based in Amsterdam and formerly led our Western European region and currently co-chairs the McKinsey Global Institute. Today's session builds on Penny and Sven's recently published article, Crushing Coronavirus Uncertainty, and it was recorded on June 2nd. Sven, let's start with you. What are the biggest sources of uncertainty, and why is it so important to address them right now? Penny and I see uncertainty on how we're dealing with the virus and how policymakers are affecting the economy and the action taken in the health response. Flattening to suppress the virus as fast as possible was one challenge. We also were worried about the hospital capacity and treatment and testing capacity that we wanted to build. And of course, we'd love to have a cure from this virus. This was the imperative to save our lives. We modeled an associated economic shock of 8 to 13 percent of GDP, which we now see happening in full motion. Economic shock is in a way progressing exponentially, as, for example, bankruptcies take some time to materialize. We are now in this phase to get back to work safely, as we maybe have the virus more under control, and just how much we have it under control is a big question. We all hope for a scaled recovery that is fast. We just want to do a progress tracker. We flattened the peak. We got it below the treatment capacity. But on testing, still a mixed picture. And cures are still a way out. And if you look at supporting people and businesses, the money is out, but it's not yet the case that people are spending the money. We are now in this process of getting to work safely. But if you have a country like Germany that opened up and you look in an office, it's about 5% of people that are attending. So it's not yet fully back. And on scaling the recovery, we're all quite deeply uncertain. Thanks, Sven. Um, So it sounds like we've made considerable progress, but a lot of uncertainty still remains. Yeah, this is really quite a mixed picture. Some of the things in how healthcare systems have responded have really surprised even those healthcare systems themselves. The expansion of treatment capacity has been dramatic and impressive. We can all remember back to when Wuhan managed to build a hospital in two weeks. And then most countries have been able to expand capacity, which is reassuring and impressive. Equally, things like testing has been slow to get off the ground, but we see testing is absolutely crucial to not just manage the virus, but also manage society's confidence. And confidence is crucial if we're to see people come back to work, if we're to see people start to spend money again. And then if we look at the cures, there is great progress, but there's challenges in developing vaccines if we don't have populations to actually test them on. As the spread of the virus is declining, it becomes more and more difficult to test those vaccines in treatment. So we have to wait and see how this disease is going to progress in terms of whether or not any immunity is conferred from having acquired it and how long that immunity may or may not last. Sven, you mentioned an economic impact on GDP of 8 to 13 percent. How does that impact actually play out? The way we thought about it is the duration of the lockdown and the duration of the suppression point, and that's different by geography. The economic impact of a lockdown is deep, and we know it. It's like 8, 10, 12, 13 percent of GDP in some countries, even a little bit more. And that is largely because discretionary spend drops by 50 percent in lockdown countries. The reality of that spending is not just people afraid of their jobs, it's also people working from home is you're not out and about so much. But thirdly, it's fear of the virus. 
So even though Sweden didn't have a super intense lockdown directive, people stayed home and they didn't travel. This response is something we need to overcome. People are not coming back to the offices because they think it's still maybe not so safe. And so as governments then 10, 20, 30 percent of GDP to help companies and people overcome this moment of crisis, will the people spend it? Will the companies spend it? And what we see is the savings rates are way up. In China, the young people started to save for the first time. So you could imagine that this policy response, while intending to mitigate the entire blow to the economy, could be partially effective. How did you measure the uncertainty and its potential impact on the drop in GDP? You could measure uncertainty in many ways, but this is an uncertainty gauge that is about economic policy uncertainty, and it's at peak level since 85. We believe it's possible to think of the current GDP drop as 50% fundamental and 50% uncertainty. And that is very insignificant. So the question is, as we get out of these lockdowns, how will we do it? So what are the different scenarios that countries are looking at in choosing the paths to reopening their economies, given all this uncertainty? So we sort of range this uncertainty on the vertical axis, the viral spread and the public health response leading to uncertainty. And the other one is the knock-on effects of the economy countered by an economic policy response where you have rapid and effective control of the virus, be it post-lockdown or even from the get-go like Taiwan did. You basically can get back to life under the umbrella of control of the virus. The second is you have an effective response, mostly lockdown-driven, but as you open up, you fear the risk of it coming back and you get regional viral resurgence and so on. And it could be possible that this viral response is not countered properly and just keeps coming back. In our April and May executive poll, these two scenarios have more than 50% of the vote. What surprised us, just how large the variety of voting was. The executives are still all over the map. And this level of uncertainty is crushing. You could imagine if you are low in the virus, you're going to stay there. Because why would you want to lift it back up? And you might enter a balancing act that just you have the virus around, but you can't get it to near zero in the balancing act. Uncertainty is still high. Everybody will feel that the virus is there because they see it in the cases. And then you can also imagine that you start in this balancing because you feel the urge to open up. You do it with the intent to later transition to complete control of the virus or at least near complete control. In many ways, the best way to be ready for a second peak is to have evidence of control rather than a balancing act. We think that the near-zero virus world is a world in which flights are possible again, restaurants can open up with more vigilance, and people can get back to life. And the question is in how many places can we get there? Some of the very early near-zero virus places like Taiwan, Korea, and Japan, they did see their exports and imports impacted deeply because of the rest of the world going into lockdown. But though their domestic economy, they saw life coming back faster than the lockdown places. So when you have intense control without lockdown, you see the economy on a bottom-up basis being quite different. How are different countries approaching this dilemma? Penny? There are some countries that have done well. The research here is going to be absolutely fascinating. I say this as someone coming from a, a medical background, some set of countries who were on the case very quickly. Some of them were helped by their natural geography, New Zealand being a very good example. But other countries, you know, like Switzerland, have managed this very effectively by adopting well-proven techniques, for example, doing lots of testing, tracing people, having strong sense of community. 
And then we've got the countries that were a bit slower coming into different lockdown measures and therefore have seen quite a significant increase. But there's probably other factors around the age profile of the population, the health status of the population, something we're increasingly seeing very strongly is that socioeconomics make a significant difference. Those countries have seen much larger numbers in terms of the mortality rate. What we still don't know is the differential impact of different lockdown measures. Research, hopefully over the next few months, will allow us to become much clearer about what aspects of lockdown work in terms of suppressing the virus. And that potentially will enable the country to move into near zero virus situations. And as Sven said, achieving that level of greater certainty, greater knowledge about what works, will have a really important impact on confidence levels amongst the population and therefore on the economy. What are the main factors that will determine which countries can successfully transition to a near-zero virus scenario? There are real differences in terms of how easy it will be for different countries to get to near-zero virus. One is clearly related to the degree to which the population are willing to adhere to different lockdown measures. Certainly, there are different views in terms of willingness to have an app that's going to trace all of your movements, identify who you've been in close contact with, and so on. And and that's something that we do see as a significant difference. The second difference is, as I referred to earlier, the health status of the population and the age profile, as well as pre-existing conditions. And then the third factor is the availability of testing and the ability to get testing out to the right people at the right time. Other factors are important, particularly how poor country boundaries are. Penny, you're close to many of the developments in the medical community. What are some of the lessons about this virus emerging on the health front, such as the potential effectiveness of herd immunity? So I think herd immunity, you know, there was a real sense of optimism, particularly obviously in Sweden, that by enabling, encouraging even particularly younger people by keeping the schools open and not having quite the severity of lockdown that we've seen in, in some other countries, that that would enable them to build immunity in less risky populations and therefore confer some protection to higher risk populations. We may well end up seeing some benefits from that, but certainly the degree to which immunity has grown in the population has been lower than people had hoped for. Even in cities that have had high rates of infection, so Stockholm, London, Paris, only around 20% of the population seem to have antibodies in their blood. And what we still don't know is whether or not that does confer immunity. In terms of vaccines, it's really impressive to see the degree of global collaboration in terms of vaccine development. But the challenge is that there aren't sufficient people out there who are at risk of contracting the virus to be able to really test whether or not the vaccine is offering protection. So some of the research is likely to take longer. And then, of course, we've got the challenges of manufacturing and distribution and administration of the vaccine. So it would be, I think, naive to assume that there is going to be a vaccine available by the fall and that it will suddenly provide protection to everybody. Are you seeing new testing protocols that would help get people back to work, such as tests to see if someone has antibodies against the virus? Yes, there's lots of discussion about that. You you test it before you get on an aeroplane, you test it before you go into an office, and so on. The challenge is that antigen testing is but a moment in time. And because so many people are asymptomatic, someone may have still got the virus between the times that you test them. It's not a foolproof mechanism. And it's also very invasive to be testing everybody every single day. So again, different countries are slowly finding their way through this. And there's a mixture of testing people with symptoms, doing random testing to see what the prevalence looks like in populations who are asymptomatic, 
as well as starting to ramp up the antibody testing. I see this entire innovation domain around treatment vaccine not as a silver bullet process, but many, many things improving a little bit or a lot. What Japan, Korea, Taiwan, and all these countries have done is they were ready because of SARS, and they actually didn't have a lockdown. They did what you normally do, test, trace, quarantine the sick, be careful with the risk groups, wear masks, and so on. And as Penny said, the problem is we have no signs that all these measures in Taiwan or Korea or Japan, this is the one that works. Because probably on the protection from the virus, it's 10, 15 things. Taiwan actually thinks it's 122 things. 10 big ones and a few smaller ones, that in some total add up to this control of the virus. Then there's always this question, can Western countries have the discipline? So it's not the money constraint on building the capability to go to near-zero virus. It's the mindset. Sven, how important are coordination and communication between nations in finding the way out of this crisis? I've not seen ideas traveling faster than now. I mean, the whole world has become epidemiologists. The whole world knows about vaccines. We even know the names of complicated things that I can't pronounce, like remdesivir. We're debating whether masks work or not. So we're learning at an incredible speed. Institutions, governments, and everybody else are collaborating as well. But this is, first and foremost, a very local event. Even in my country, which is tiny, the Netherlands, there are 330 municipalities, and what is happening on the ground in these municipalities is completely different. And whatever layer on top can help promote the learning is then additionally helpful. We have very credible authorities, as well as WHO, in different countries that are doing very high-caliber research, sharing that as quickly as they can. So that information is out there. Uh, Just to put a bit of context around this, remember HIV. I was a junior doctor working with patients with HIV in the mid-late 80s. We did not know what we were dealing with at that time. It felt not dissimilar to now, but we didn't have any PPE. We didn't have any testing. We were completely flying blind for actually several years until we started to understand what the risk factors were, how the virus was transmitted and so on, before we even then started to explore treatments. And if we compare that to now, We are making progress at a dramatically faster rate. In five, six months, we know an enormous amount. In the 80s, that was five, six years. So we should take heart from the fact we have an amazing ability now to all learn from each other, to share information in a dramatically faster way. And so how has our understanding of the different risk groups and factors developed? So again, this is where we've got increasingly good information. Certainly, risks are dramatically higher of you having a bad outcome if you are old, if you are male, and if you are overweight. And then related to overweight is a link to diabetes, hypertension, and so on. And there's also very good data in the UK looking at occupation groups. Sven, as as Penny pointed out, on the healthcare front, we're all learning at incredible speed. What are some of the lessons here that businesses can apply? We had successful ramp-up of homeschooling in three days. People talk about quality differences, but if you think about the education system as doing anything in three days, at scale of the nation. That's not something we were thinking about. Also, a pharma company found that when they worked to have as few people in the factory that they could have to prevent corona risk, it turned out that they could actually run it at much higher productivity. There's a unique characteristic of this moment, which is that it is not just trend-rich, but it's also event-rich. And so we think when you plan ahead for your strategic crisis response, not the immediate crisis response. You need to take into account a completely different level of speed, potentially completely different level of productivity. I've had this discussion, for example, with governments who say we're doing decades in days. So if you think about the trends that were predicted for 2030, what happened to them? 
We find a lot of stuff has accelerated almost structurally. Everything digital, home delivery, telemedicine, the social contract between companies and their employees and their communities, outcome-based health, many components of future work that were planned for a decade from now happened in a week. To telemedicine example, we were in the low teens on penetration. It moved more than 70% in four days. One filter that I have about this acceleration is, will it stay or will it not? And if the change on all sides of the equation feels better, it's going to stay. With education from home, somehow the kids want to go to school and the parents don't want them home all the time. If you look at things that are shifting, small brands were winning, but now the bigger brands are winning. Globalization clearly has some twists to it. I don't think it's complete reverse. The globalization of ideas that we just discussed is massive. Resource shortages are less if you have less demand. So could this bring peak oil demand 10 years forward? The jury is still out on a couple of things. The green agenda is not off the table, but the speed and the directionality might change a bit. The balance between emerging markets and developed markets will be affected. Trade disputes might flare up. Geopolitics might flare up. People will look for resilience, not just of banks, but of companies and institutions. And they will look more broadly than just the supply chain. What happens if you have a 10% demand drop? And of course, governments are getting more involved with all the stimulus. And the speed and scale of innovation, which drives all the acceleration, is fundamentally new. I can't overemphasize the piece around supply chains. That has been a massive wake-up call for so many companies who suddenly had to think at the very senior level of the company, where do we get day-to-day things from? You could argue that 20 years ago, the role of the people leader, the HR director, suddenly changed in prominence. I think the change in prominence in 2020 is the role of the supply chain director and the, the logistics folks in any organization. And do you find that most companies have moved from dealing with crisis response to now looking at how these shifts are going to affect their strategies? Well, all companies have their crisis team dealing with business continuity, client support, supply chain, work from home. It is healthy to set up a separate plan ahead team. That's not your normal strategy team. It's working groups and planning groups that come up with ideas to be faster in this crisis and to then add things to your crisis team that need to get resolved. Let me give you two examples of that. You could choose and wait as a fashion retailer until you hope the governments open up and then find out that a half-full store doesn't have great economics. Or you could work now on how you reshape the fashion retail landscape to get it right. Similarly for airlines, it will be different how it opens up. Should you just be in the crisis now or should you also shape it with a plan ahead? The future in many ways is now, with decades happening in days, It's time to raise the plan ahead efforts of your company beyond the immediate crisis. We've been looking for lessons from the army. An army goes from no war to war overnight, and then in the war, lots of events occur. It's not a gradual shift, boom, it happens. And they have found a way to have a very scalable effort to deal with many issues in the future, which they call their what-if teams. We think a plan ahead team should look two weeks ahead, four weeks ahead, two months ahead, one quarter, two quarters, and one year, and then beyond. And in all time frames, imagine possible futures, and then what you would do as a company about these futures. And then ask yourself, is there something we should do now to be ready for that future, or can we wait? So you mentioned earlier, consumer confidence is a really important element in getting these economies moving again. What are some of the ways that people are getting excited about spending? What needs to be in place? So there's a very deep research that looked at the past 287 
recessions, micro ones and big ones. And there's really only one point in time that consumers go back and similarly businesses are getting back to investing. It's when they see the path out of the valley and can make the first step. It's not enough to see the path. They have to personally be able to make the first step. So it'd be great for those consumers to have their first out-of-home dinner. They say, hey, this works. It's as mundane as that. The first step you get your confidence back. As this business starts to open up again, then it probably will mean that my business will be allowed. There's some good research pieces that basically ask consumers, do you feel life is back? And then the next question is, if no, when do you think it's back? And the uncertainty range at the moment is between weeks and three years. And the average is 18 to 22 months. That's just too long. It's time that we crush this uncertainty. You know, many people are worried about a resurgence of the virus, a second wave. How do you get people back to thinking about life as normal while this uncertainty about a second wave stays in, in, in the front of mind for a lot of people? There may well be a second wave. In some ways, it would be surprising if there wasn't. But most countries now are in a much better position. They've got good surveillance systems. They've got the testing up and running. They've got the stocks of the PPE. They know how to expand their healthcare system up to cope. Crucially, we increasingly know what will then help us to counter that second wave. So what are the different lockdown measures that we need? How do we manage it? I am confident that we will have much greater clarity about how we manage that wave. Well, certainly hope that's the case. Um, Our last question, do you see a consensus emerging out of the crisis around how the world should be thinking about and dealing with future pandemics? Well, my positive answer, I mean, first is, because the past is no prediction of the future. But if we do look at the past, these are relatively unusual events. We can take confidence in that. Secondly, this has allowed us to see where the weak points are, which societies as well as healthcare systems were not fully prepared for. I am absolutely sure that every country is going to try and address those real weak spots. At the same time, whatever comes along next will be slightly different. So the key point is we have to learn the underlying measures, which for me are around really good data and an ability to be agile. So this ability to respond really quickly to whatever may hit us. I'll make a small prediction here, Sean. I believe that when we look at this thing three to four years from now, because I believe we will be looking back three to four years from now, I think we will say this was a one in 60 year virus, a one in 80 year economy, and this was a job well done. Thanks for ending us on a high note there, Sven. Uh, Sven, Penny, thanks again for taking the time with us today. For those of you listening, we hope you enjoyed today's episode of Inside the Strategy Room. A transcript of this conversation will also be posted soon on McKinsey.com. If you'd like to reach us directly or suggest ideas for future episodes, please email us at insidethestrategyroom at McKinsey.com. If you'd like to stay connected to our latest strategy and corporate finance insights, we encourage you to sign up for our email updates on McKinsey.com or you can follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy or connect with us on LinkedIn via the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.